0: Filmstruck is the streaming service for fans of great cinema and the exclusive streaming home for the Criterion Collection, featuring a bounty of independent and foreign titles plus original bonus material. And Filmstruck is now available on Roku. Start your free trial today at Filmstruck.com. Hello and welcome to the Film Comet Podcast. My name is Violet Luca and I'm the digital producer. In a media ecosystem where opinion and ad copy are often circulated as facts, it's difficult to get the truth, especially when there are millions of dollars at stake. As streaming companies like Netflix and Amazon move into producing films, the question of how these releases are available to us – streaming only, VOD plus theatrical, or theatrical and then streaming – vary greatly. Are they truly a threat to traditional theaters? To address this debate, I was joined by...
1: Daniel Loria, I'm the editorial director at Box Office Magazine. And... Nick Pinkerton, a
2: uh, peripatetic film critic.
0: Here's the conversation. At Cannes this year, there was, you know, a big debate about streaming. They were
2: upset because both Okja and the uh, Bombach film Myrowitz stories were both netflix releases Mm -hmm. and as is pretty much par for the course with netflix they were not planning to have any kind of theatrical for those films Mm -hmm. uh and this caused quite a hullabaloo and consequently it is my understanding that can has made a new rule that its competition films must have a traditional theatrical release in france after the french cinema federation objected to the inclusion of the films in question. And I think it's particularly in France that it's an issue Mm -hmm. in the States. I think Netflix have taken to giving these completely sort of symbolic theatrical runs at IPix theaters, which is very different from the tack taken by Amazon. Mm -hmm. Um, But that more or less is my understanding of what the, what the issue of contention was.
0: Right. So right now we live in a world where basically home video stuff, DVDs, Blu-rays, Rested Soul, VHS, uh, that that market is gone. It's not, not really though. Is it's it? just
2: final now. But it is there yeah. is definitely a collector's market. There is still a collector's market. I know market. because a significant amount of my revenue stream comes from it at this point. Right. Now it's not like the high heady heydays of ten years ago. Right. But yes, it's more of a like 180 gram like
0: <laughs> pressing uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah yeah
2: it's 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 for a particular small but ardent market
0: right and what has sort of replaced that larger revenue that we were talking about 10 or 15 years ago is global box office numbers and i think daniel maybe you could speak better to this talking about that shift away and like what approaches are being used it's not like The new Marvel movie is getting a same-day VOD release and a theatrical release. It's these smaller, quote-unquote smaller films.
1: Yeah, uh, we had a digital transition. So Mm -hmm. when we speak about topics like this, we talk about disruption, right? That's Mm -hmm. the buzzword in the articles. The real disruption in technology terms for theatrical exhibition happened uh, at the beginning of the decade mm-hmm. uh, with digital uh, digital projection coming in and replacing on a commercial level, at least, uh, 35 millimeter. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean it's uh, better or worse. It just became the sort of commercial standard. And I mm-hmm. do stress commercial mm-hmm. because that's basically what we're talking about. And really democratized overseas distribution and overseas exhibition. Mm -hmm. With digital cinema, we start to see the growth of cinema screens in many countries. We start seeing a proliferation of cinemas in Brazil, in Russia, in China, especially China today continues being a huge market. And we start seeing this growth internationally where there are more screens popping up. The standard of the film print is much higher than it used to be. And it's easier to do, say, a day and date overseas release or having an overseas release first in some territories as opposed to the US one. So that was able to really uh, step up during a time when, yeah, the home entertainment market was maybe not bottoming out in the way that, that, that Nick said, but maybe moving more to a niche marketplace, a collector's mm-hmm. marketplace than a consumer one, mm-hmm. right? Uh, I still buy DVDs. I'm maybe one of the five people that do. But four of the five DVDs I buy, of course, are probably Criterion collection DVDs, which probably tells you a little bit of, uh, you know, the consumer purchases. And it's also telling, of course, that uh, Criterion is now moving into the streaming space along with TCM as they mm-hmm. try to figure out the next stage of their own uh, commercial entities. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we we started seeing a lot of that revenue uh, lost by the studios on the home entertainment side. It started getting found on the international end of things. And the international marketplace started uh, getting a bigger and bigger role uh, to the point where it is right now, where international really drives a huge part of the conversation.
0: What Amazon has been doing and what Netflix has been doing is giving money to let's say, auteurs, right? Boz Luhrmann to realize, you know, the get down and then taking it away because it was too expensive. Um, and then also giving money, and then Amazon giving money to people. I don't people know
2: what like, I'm going to do without uh, new episodes of Marco Polo. <laughs> we were all just addicted to that.
0: Yeah, um, a series that cost, I had no idea it existed until it was announced that it was canceled. cost several hundred million to produce. Uh yeah. Um, maybe we could speak about that.
2: <laughs> yeah, I think everybody's dying to hear more about uh, t- about Marco Polo.
0: <laughs> One, it exists. <laughs> <Yeah>. Two.
2: <laughs> well, yeah, this this last is it within the last week that we've had this first kind of contraction yes. of of Netflix's globe-taking sort of ambitions mm-hmm. that we, we've we've had Mr. Reed Hastings uh, drop the axe on <laughs> a couple of their original programs. Yeah, I'm sorry, you were saying.
0: No, I mean I think we should touch on that contraction. I mean, um streaming notoriously does not give out those numbers because they have no incentive to do so. Sure. But a good point of comparison would be Carrie Fukunaga's Beast of No Nation versus Manchester by the Sea by Kenneth Lonergan. Mm-hmm. So Beast of No Nation was never really barely in theaters. And then Manchester by the Sea there was this giant well giant what is giant anymore
2: there was a for a fairly small character driven drama manchester by the sea did very very well for itself Yes, as did Witt stillman's love and friendship yes another amazon acquisition and the fact that these things had the theatrical presence that they did points i think to a basic Schism between the way that to date the two big streaming giants have done their business. On one hand, you have Netflix who have more or less put the kibosh on any kind of theatrical rollout Mm -hmm. because the thinking is that any kind of theatrical life is a form of competition for their streaming platform. So they have a relationship with this, IPIX theater chain, which is like, there's one in the Southside Seaport. I haven't been. I've been to the website. They have like some leather Barco loungers where you can like go and watch the fundamentals of caring or whatever. <laughs> um, but for the most part, they're completely indifferent to, indifferent to, or even hostile to the idea of their acquired films having any kind of theatrical existence. Whereas Amazon, and it's not to say that one is more nefarious or less nefarious than the other. I think there's plenty to take pause about uh, when discussing both companies. However, from a... Cinephile perspective from the perspective of somebody who enjoys seeing movies have mm-hmm. something of a theatrical existence. Amazon has done things, quote unquote, the right way in terms of their hiring. Our old friend Scotty Foundus is yes. over there, Ted Hope, in terms of bringing in people who are movie people who have this, you know, particular set of uh, assumptions about what the life of a film is, and they have treated the theatrical run as just another way to like gen up uh publicity for their films and I, I was looking today at the legendary coming out that was 2016 sundance where you had these massive acquisitions being made by both netflix and amazon and two of the big Netflix titles were Fundamentals of Caring, which I mentioned, which went for $7 million, and Tallulah for $5 million. Okay, then you had Amazon, who picked up the aforementioned Manchester by the Sea for a cool $10 million, Love and Friendship for an undisclosed amount. And to my mind, it's pretty black and white as to the sort of level of visibility that those films had after the fact. So then... As a filmmaker, and for the most part, filmmakers do put a premium on that theatrical run and on the publicity that that drums up for their work and for their project as a whole, I think you look at these two things. Who do you want to be in business with? Somebody who is going to give you that theatrical window or somebody, uh, you know, a company for whom anything, any mention of a theatrical life is a threat?
1: I think that's the conversation, right? Who do you want to be in business with? It's really a commercial relationship with a distributor, as many exhibitors have with many individual distributors. It's not a pro or con streaming or pro or con uh, home entertainment conversation. It's really finding the best way to promote the life cycle of a movie. The worst thing you can say about a movie is, I don't remember seeing it. At least that's my opinion. The $5 DVD bin of death in Walgreens is the saddest place to be. And if your movie's there, you know, there's, there's a little bit of sadness in that. And there's a reason why, you know, we've never heard of those uh, titles in that bin. And I think that goes back to the issue at hand that we saw at Cannes. We saw a lot of uh, French exhibitors very, very concerned with the sort of cultural standing and uh, promotion towards a company that they felt maybe wasn't representing uh, film culture to their standards. We saw that in South Korea as well, with a number of uh, big uh, circuits uh, also deciding not to go into business uh, with the, the-, the theatrical release of this Netflix title. And that's a conversation that every exhibitor has to have with every distributor, right? And again, it's not a pro or con streaming Amazon is not about which company is better or worse, but the terms presented to a lot of exhibitors by Amazon have been significantly better. And look at the type of people that are working at, at, at these institutions as well. Nothing against Netflix executives, but like you mentioned, there's a lot of indie cred at Amazon. There was a lot of personnel investment there of people that know the industry And that, no, and this is very important, the type of movies that the big studios aren't making as much. And that's why you have a situation where Amazon Studios can partner for the theatrical release of a film with established distributors to make sure they get a fair run on these titles. And you see Manchester by the Sea stick around uh, movie theaters for weeks and weeks and weeks. And uh, on top of that, it's not really just saying, well... Maybe if uh, Netflix puts out a movie into movie theaters for two weeks, it's done. It's it's more about that. Distribution is really to the support that you give the movies during their theatrical run. Is there an exhibitor relations department that has your interests at heart and understands that the life cycle of a movie isn't limited to its life cycle on your platform? Mm -hmm. I think what we're seeing from Amazon is a commitment to the titles and to the filmmakers. In my personal opinion... It would seem Netflix's approach is a commitment to its platform. And then,
2: I mean, you mentioned that exhibitors are bringing pressure to bear. I think also increasingly you will and have already will see filmmakers bringing pressure to bear. And I wanted to bring up a specific instance, which I think is interesting and illustrative, which is the case of Bertrand Bonello's uh, Nocturama.
0: Yes, I was going to ask about this.
2: Which was uh, sold to Netflix by Wild Bunch. And it's a film that I don't have an enormous amount of fondness for. However, I think from any perspective, it will be a big film. I think it had an enormous amount of conversation buzzing around it, but it's taken the thing nearly a year to have any kind of, to, to surface above water theatrically because the theatrical rights have had to be extricated here. And this is because of Bonello, who was very PO'd at the idea that his film would not be seen by audiences in a theater. And so after this, you know, this long untying of the Gordian knot that is the theatrical, uh, theatrical rights. It's now been, I believe it's with Grasshopper now and will now have some kind of theatrical life. But that only happened because Bonello became very proactive about it. And so you see on the level of the exhibitors, on the level of certain filmmakers themselves, perhaps this becomes less and less Tenable as a way of doing business for for Netflix.
0: Mm-hmm. And I guess leaving that aside for a second, do you envision this changing? Because so much of the convention about the reason, part of the reason why Netflix gives a run to these things in the iPix theater is because they do want these films to be considered and eligible for awards
2: a dear friend of mine put it this way that they very much want to have their cake and eat it too they want Mm -hmm. all the nominations they want all the prestige they want to be treated like you know big players which indeed they are but they don't want to part they don't want to play the game they don't want to participate in the usual steps that one has to go through in order to achieve that level of prestige and If they're able to take the bully pulpit and make things happen their way, well, you know, bully for them. But at one and the same time, there are a lot of other players in the equation, again, distributors, exhibitors, filmmakers, who have a say about this as well.
1: It's Uh, a question about the individual films, too. Just because Beasts of No Nation was available in a lot of households, doesn't mean there was an interest from those households to see it or that they even knew it was available to them. Right? There was very little uh, of a push. There was very little word of mouth. And that's something that you can achieve little by little. I think Manchester by the Sea, people outside of our little corner of cinephiles had heard of it. It wasn't a theater. They had recognized it. And in, in terms of the sort of content you see at home, maybe a, a movie about... Child Soldiers in Africa probably isn't the sort of uh, Netflix and chill programming you want. Well, I mean, as
2: flawed as it is, that infrastructure for addressing films tagged to theatrical release dates is still very much there. I mean, that is how the critical apparatus tends to get the word out about things. And however much our viewing habits have changed still the way that magazine covers are assigned and the way that lead reviews are set down is very very much tied up in that theatrical rollout and no value judgment implied there but that's kind of how it is and netflix seems to think that single-handedly they can change the tide of things i think uh the Statement uh, by uh, Reed Hastings via Facebook after the kerfuffle at Cannes was that the establishment is closing ranks against us. I was just like, okay, man, you're, you're an anti-establishment <laughs> maverick. <laughs> Hastings uh, leading the resistance. Yeah, yeah. Like, like, sure, yeah. buddy. Yeah, <laughs> 100%. Um, you know, that seems to be the tack that they're taking thus far, and that's a mighty big... Boulder to Which, roll uphill. Yeah,
1: it's very curious because it's it it doesn't have to be confrontational, and that's what surprises me, and that's why I think Amazon plays such a big part in this conversation because their business interests lie in the Amazon Prime uh, video streaming and platform they have, but they have hired basically personnel that understands there's a world to the life cycle of a film beyond that. And there are benefits beyond that. Home entertainment is a big part of, uh, I think, a a film's existence and in many ways can bring new life into a title. If we look during the DVD days, a title that didn't do so well in the box office like Fight Club really benefited from the DVD release. A title uh, like The Big Lebowski, the same way. Uh, These are titles that, through home entertainment releases, uh, can sort of survive and exist, but it doesn't have to be so confrontational. These are essentially complementary businesses.
0: I think I will interject that I feel like it is a question of outlook because Netflix, you know, it's been around for it's getting it's getting close to twenty years, right? And. Because it is a tech startup and it views itself, as you said before, a disruptor within the internal logic of that company, maybe it does make sense to be like, hey, we're taking down this antiquated old idea of how to do things. We're, you know, we're Uberizing this thing, even though Netflix existed for Uber. And it's like, well, no, you're not. There are a lot of conventions associated at multiple levels because it's the function of a critic. You know, anyone can be a reviewer now, right? But. You need critics to sort of set the conversation to sort of help guide and see, be like, yeah, you really should see Manchester by the sea and here is why, or no, don't see it because, and here is why.
2: Well, I think it's also worth mentioning briefly at least that the basic setup of these two entities is very different right? and that... I mean we're we we meet in this room on the eve of the announcement of Amazon's acquisition of Whole Foods. Yeah. And you know, this is Which a, is
0: terrifying, sorry. Sure.
2: <laughs> sure. This is a company with many many more tentacles out there mm-hmm. with and far drones, more, far more <laughs> diversified interests who perhaps have the luxury of being able to take the L on their film acquisitions which you know, maybe are not an enormous money making proposition, but are very useful for data extraction and things of that nature. Uh, whereas Netflix is a far less diversified undertaking. And it should be said that, like you know, if I had my druthers, I would definitely blow up both of these companies immediately. But <laughs> you know, from a purely pragmatic perspective. These are, you know, the forces, the tectonic forces that determine what we see.
0: You know, you mentioned grasshopper and this question of smaller distributors who do sort of have these little boutique arrangements, you know, on the coast, because I think the other important thing to keep in mind is that, again, it's this idea that, okay, so the internet is going to democratize things and it's not going to make a difference if you live in New York or Or Boise, Idaho, or wherever, all of these things are going to be available to you at the exact same time. And, you know, theaters have, over the past 25 years, closed. There still are plenty of art house movie theaters out there. But again, I feel like a lot of the, if you look at the programming of those, a lot of those do just sort of run smaller, big studio films like The Imitation Game, uh, for instance. Um, But,
2: the Helen Mirren uh, films.
0: Yeah, the Mirren's, the Miranology, like
1: whatever dame uh <laughs>
0: Judy Dench, yeah. Dame Judy Dench. Yeah, sure. I think sure.
1: that that brings up a, a good question. That obviously, as commercial entities, even art houses and even non-for-profit institutions like the one we're in right now, the Film mm-hmm. Society of Lincoln Center, is uh, a great cultural institution. This film center runs uh, first-run movies, and they right. have a commercial responsibility to do so. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, with theatrical uh, exhibition, there is a, a responsibility. To make sure that the films that are out there have the marketing support mm-hmm. uh, to let everyone in 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 their communities know that that these films are out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think that's that's definitely a big part in this conversation because the streaming conversation isn't just uh, Netflix versus Amazon, right? Right. They're right. the two leading parties right now, but it's a much larger conversation beyond that. And that is strictly right now a home entertainment question. If We're talking about a theatrical uh, question. I think movie theaters uh, have done quite well uh, in the last uh, 15, 20, 25 years, uh, especially art houses as well. I think you are seeing different types of movie theaters open at different price points with different amenities uh, to the point where the consumer has a different way they can decide to watch a movie. Uh, in many cities around the country? Uh, do you want to watch it uh, in a dine-in theater? Do you want to watch it at an art house? Do you want to have a drink? Uh, do you want your seat to shake? Uh, for many people, the answer might be no to, to all of them, and there's still a theater in question for them. So I I, I think, yeah, we're, we should approach this conversation uh, understanding that there's a division between both things. If we're talking about the theatrical side, the theatrical side has been able to... Uh, stay ahead of the curve by achieving record revenues uh, in four of the last five years while having pretty steady attendance. We didn't really see a a big attendance bump. Part of that, uh, I think, is diversity in price points. That doesn't mean all the prices are going up. It's that in the same way that when you go to a sports stadium, for example, you can decide how you want to see the content and what price you want to see it at.
2: Now... I, I I know very few things, but I know this to be true, is that anyone in this enormous upheaval that we've been living through in the Web 2.0 era, anybody who tells you that they have a sort of teleological, determinative idea of what is going to happen, they're almost certainly trying to sell you their idea of what they want to happen. Correct. <laughs> so anytime anyone tells you streaming's the future, it's, you know theatrical dead, brick and mortar is dead, that's the way it's going. That may be the case, but I'm almost certain that A, nobody fucking knows actually what's going down, yeah. and if somebody is saying that in a definitive and fanatical manner, they are trying to sell me something, mm-hmm. which is their platform service. And this I've been certain of since the early days when we first started hearing a lot of chatter about day and date, which I track back and maybe this isn't accurate but certainly it first comes up onto my radar with the release of Soderbergh's Bubble 2006 uh, by way of uh, Magnolia Pictures when you had Mark Cuban as the first avatar of the streaming revolution so anytime I, I hear a definitive streaming is where it's going I put a big asterisk next to that
0: We're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be right back. Now you can stream critically acclaimed films and cult favorites from the world's greatest film libraries with Filmstruck. Filmstruck is the streaming service for fans of great cinema and the exclusive streaming home for the Criterion Collection. Filmstruck brings you a bounty of independent and foreign titles, updated weekly, plus original bonus material and expert commentary. And Filmstruck is now available on Roku. Start your free 14-day trial today at filmstruck.com now would be a good time to bring up another technology which is cell phones in the early 90s AT&T sold all of its cell phone technology they're like oh they're big they're bulky no one's going to really use those Mm -hmm. by the end of the decade they were completely wrong but if you look 1996 there was this new operating system called linux Mm -hmm. and it was going to revolutionize and democratize the industry
2: Now, hold on, I'm getting this down on my Apple Newton.
0: Exactly, right? So, but all of the great things that both Macs and PCs can do now is done with Linux technology, but no one actually uses that operating system except for nerds. So, sometimes a technology, you know, it can either be cell phones or it can be Linux. And you're not, and as you say, Nick, you're not really going to know until you get there. No one can really actually see the future. And especially in a, you know, I think what we keep coming up against is that the film industry is many things. It's many things, not simply because of convention, but it's also just like there are multiple arms in the industry. And there's also a culture that you kind of have to reckon with if Mm -hmm. you're really going to be successful in it. Mm. And again it's hard it's it's so hard to talk about these things without actually knowing like for playing something, how much money does Netflix actually make
1: well, I think the the third party conversation is at the center of this conversation mm-hmm. where uh a lot of the companies that uh are leading voices in wanting to change the uh, theatrical release window are really talking about it in terms of promoting their platform. Mm. And, again, when you have record revenues in theatrical, when you have movie theaters spending a lot of money, and this is all movie theaters in general because it it costs a lot of money to get those digital projectors, as a lot of art houses will be able to tell you. And it costs a lot of money to get a lot of these new seats and a lot of the innovations that, that theaters have invested in. When the movie theaters have done their part, when they've stepped up, when, uh, when distributors are there, again, supplying the marketing support for each title as much as they can, uh, even upstarts like A24, I mean, we're talking about, uh, a, in my opinion, a, a great uh, distributor that in every conversation I've had with an arthouse exhibitor, they've always brought up the great support they've had in marketing the A24 titles in their theaters. And then all of a sudden, there's going to be a tension when a third party comes in and says, hey... We want to change this. Again, it's not a pro or anti-streaming as much as it's a situation where the movie theaters are asking for a place at the table and are asking for an opportunity to be part of the discussions. And uh, the decision of what happens next uh, will happen from those conversations uh, directly between them.
0: And I guess, do you have a sense of, like, what sorts of numbers, smaller or independent or foreign movies make outside of New York and L.A.? Or is that more difficult?
1: It's hard because it, I think it's always on a title-by-title title basis. If we right. remember with the theatrical release of Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, we all thought, problem solved. Mm-hmm. Foreign language movies can play in shopping malls anywhere. It's finished. We're done. Well, that, that, that wasn't true. And it's... It, in everything in the film industry, it, sometimes it's much easier to group things into genres, into mm-hmm. ratings, into, you know, even just say the the gender conversation we are having a little bit earlier. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, if if Ghostbusters doesn't do well, well, that means female comedies won't do well. No, that just means the jokes probably weren't very good. Right. That's what that means. It doesn't <laughs> yes. really mean anything beyond that. Uh, so it's, it's really a situation we have to look at title by title. Uh, if we look at a, a good example of this is looking at uh, the box office performance of someone like Woody Allen. That uh, This is uh, a name that a lot of people recognize. Not all of his movies go wide. Some do, some don't. Uh, We know there's going to be a a Woody Allen movie each year, but it really depends on that individual movie for us to figure out the sort of screen count it's going to get uh, down the road. I wanted to go back just for a moment to something that
2: uh, you mentioned earlier violet which is this idea which is always brought up with regards to streaming platforms of the possibility of a kind of democratization mm-hmm. of availability for more niche materials and this idea that you can have at one in the same time in manhattan and boise the availability of uh, it's often brought up with regards to, say, smaller independent films. And the idea is, well, isn't it fantastic that these things are, you know, available on the you know, Netflix menu or whatever. But I so often find myself wondering, why do we not think about this democratization in terms of brick and mortar? Why do don't the people in Boise have the opportunity to see these things in a theater because we don't have to go back so very far to look at a landscape in these United States where most any town of over say a hundred thousand souls would be equipped with an art house, uh, would perhaps have a campus film society, Mm -hmm. um, we don't have to go too far back to see that and if we're really touting the idea of democratic availability i i like to sort of flip that that streaming uh, logic or the the logic of the streaming boosters on its head and say mm-hmm. well you know hey everybody gets a record store everybody gets like a good used bookstore in their town why is it not like why is it practically not possible for there to be a wider distribution particularly as the overhead has been slashed for you know showing movies in a theater why is that not practically possible and I have a sense that maybe just maybe that Things are turning around ever so mm-hmm, slightly. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I think this was averred to a bit, but there has been there have been years and years of indifference, laxity, cupidity, so on and so forth on the part of largely uh, big theatrical distribution chains, uh, big you know big exhibitors. There's no question that for a long time you would go to, you know, you would go to a, a big cinema and you would see the masking wrong. You would see complete indifference on the part of the presentation. There was a very good reason to give a wide berth to theatrical movie going. There has, you know, often has been, but I think ever so slowly you've seen the emergence of supportable alternatives to the laxity and indifference of your average multiplex. Right. And it's fantastic that we've had this blossoming of new venues in New York City. Mm-hmm. It's fantastic that, you know, there are a few other places in in this great nation where people have the ability to go out and see things theatrically. I don't see why that can't happen on a wider scale Mm -hmm. and i mean honestly who 20 years ago would think that every single city in the united states of america would support like 30 micro brews right but they do now exactly they do now yeah there's absolutely no reason to think that that would be a sustainable uh undertaking and Americans like bud and then it was (laughs) exactly and then it was
1: I I think this is one of those details uh, that uh, I spoke about the actual disruption that happened in the theatrical industry being digital projection Mm. Mm -hmm. that this isn't an an artistic statement I'm making this is purely a commercial statement so Mm -hmm. yeah I, I love 35 millimeter I'm a big fan of celluloid but commercially it means a lot that that theater in Boise isn't getting a beat-up print of Moonlight in week 12. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They're getting a pristine digital print when that movie it feels it's ready enough to expand to, to get a, a wider sort of screen count in its theatrical run. And it's able to get there at a much more affordable uh, pace for the distributor than it would have uh, 15, 20 years ago. So we, we have seen, I think, the standard of uh, the movie-going experience raise considerably, in the last 10, 15, 20 years. The challenge with this is that no matter uh, how much money you pour into a cinema, uh, and this is uh, borrowing a quote from a colleague of mine, uh, Patrick Von Suchowski from the website Cellular Junkie, no matter how modern a cinema is, if you go into the bathroom and it's dirty, you had a bad experience. Right. It's, it's, those, it's, it's those very small details that that, that go a long way And in terms of cinema going, if a night out, if you go out to a restaurant and you have a bad meal, chances are you probably won't be going to that restaurant again, but you might go to a restaurant later that month. Mm -hmm. Cinema going has a little bit of a bigger challenge where people don't really have that brand association as they do with, uh, with other situations. If you go to the movies and you have a bad time at the movies, it's going to be hard to get that consumer back. Movie theaters know that. And you've seen in the investment, not only in the multiplexes, but you've seen that investment in a lot of art houses and smaller cinemas nationwide since the digital uh, transition to making sure that as many parts of the movie-going experience are up to standards. Uh, A good example of this uh, is happening in Europe right now, where we're seeing uh, the Wanda Group that uh, owns AMC just acquire the Odeon Group out of UK and a couple of other circuits associated in continental Europe. And around the turn of, this, uh, of the decade, on 2008, 2009, you s- maybe a little bit before that, you saw a lot of private equity firms uh, step up their investment in owning cinema chains and owning cinema circuits. And maybe, maybe the way that they valued that investment was more as an investment as opposed to being in the business long term. A big difference you're seeing right now is you're seeing exhibition circuits like the Wanda Group that ha- that operates a big exhibition circuit in China, like Mexico's uh, Cinepolis that is also that has acquired cinemas in India and in Spain. You're seeing exhibition groups and circuits by other exhibition groups and circuits to stay in the business long term, and I think there is this a commitment from the part of movie theaters to make sure uh, that the movie-going experience can stay up there because that's going to be a deciding factor in the growth and the sustainable growth of this industry. Content, yes, that always impacts everything, right? But you have to make sure that the consumer is enjoying its Friday night out.
0: Yeah. At what point does that experience, you know, because obviously, you know, you mentioned before, like, There are a lot of chains now that have food service, drinks.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that has been an enormous contributor, the sort of discovery of this Mm value-added element to the film-going experience, which I think has really been all to the good, particularly in the sort of circles that I travel in, because Mm -hmm. for years and years and years, in the like niche-slash- repertory slash experimental slash whatever uh, theaters the the chorus that you always heard is how can we get young people to come to the movies how can we get young people to come to the movies it's a fucking no brainer so give them a drink and give them a place where they can hang out and flirt and feel like they might possibly like tack something onto their evening Mm -hmm. in addition to seeing a movie and they will come out make it however incrementally more like going to see a show going to see a band mm-hmm. give like some of that air of erotic possibility to movie going which yeah. it should always have and kids will come out because going to movies is fun and cool
0: right and uh, it's not yeah and it's it's like it's like it's almost as if the lure of a darkened room full of strangers is not enough yeah. to appeal <laughs> to young but, people but, you know
1: Nick what you just said I think is one of the reasons why I, I disagree with your with your opinion if I pick I pick uh, has been able to build its own brand and be its own entity. Bear in by... mind, I've never been to one of these theaters. <laughs> oh, then, 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 <laughs> yeah, then, then I have to call you out. I think I think it is unfair to, to correct to, to to badly characterize those theaters for for trying to to do something to build their own brand and do things their own way. Um, is I pick the thing for me? Uh, maybe if I'm interested for for doing that having that sort of evening at one of their theaters. Programming is a different question altogether. And programming is a, a big, big question mark uh, all around. And not only for theatrical, but also for streaming. When we talk about uh, the importance of programming and of curation and of dialogue around film, as opposed to a film criticism algorithm or a programming algorithm, or if you that if you liked A, you might like C. You know, that's... That's a different aspect of the conversation. But yeah, I, I think, uh, as we were mentioning, these are you have options of how you want to see the movie now, not only of just wanting to see that movie in itself. And of course, it's it, it helps when there are different price options associated with it. Uh, there are people that are willing to spend more money on a Friday night out to movies at a dine-in theater because they want that aspect to be part of their Friday night. Many times when I go to a movie on a Friday night, uh, I go as a specific type of film goer to see the movie. That's how I like to enjoy watching my movies. I like what's on screen. Um, but yeah, we, we we are seeing, like you're mentioning, Nick, uh, a, a big investment and a big way of bringing in audiences by offering them a, a couple of other details to, to enjoy on yeah, their weekend. And it's so
2: profoundly unsurprising to see it borne out in terms of theater going habits and particularly the sort of spike that we've seen here in new york uh in recent months and years it's like how how totally unsurprising is it that when the entire movie going experience is stamped with some tlc and some indication that someone is being mindful of what your experience is that people respond (laughs) in a positive way
0: and it's not just i mean because my first job was working at a a smaller multiplex and really all we had was to offer people were very expensive popcorn and candy marked up because we had to pay to keep the you know the theater going and it's like i'm sure if we had nicer food people would have bought it and they probably would have bought it less begrudgingly because there's nothing more fun than very slowly filling up someone's bag of popcorn while they're complaining that it costs like $9. I,
2: like, I liked uh, upselling. Oh, case, yeah. No. In case you got that secret shopper. Oh,
0: yes. Exactly. No, I, I upselled <laughs> all the time and I never got that bonus. Oh, no. I don't know. Maybe they just never passed by. I,
2: I sold a, a Pepsi beach towel. <laughs> I was the only concessionaire who managed to move. Yeah, it. You, guys, you guys both
1: were theatrical. I, I worked at a video store back when they yeah, still yeah. existed. Oh, yeah, I did no, that, I did that I, too. I, buddy. I did the home entertainment. I covered uh, the shift. waterfront. <laughs> all right. All right.
0: <laughs> no, I they, wanted to. I wanted to work in video store, but they would not hire me. And you know, sexism. <laughs> we, we have to look. At, we
1: have to look at the, uh, at the way I think also that, that art houses and cultural institutions like this one have been able to raise the standards of the movie going experience. And I yeah. will give. The Film Society in Lincoln Center, uh, a lot of credit for being a pioneer of that in New York City. Uh, mm-hmm. In this building, we are right now. Uh, I was working for the Digital Strategy uh, team uh, when it opened, so mm-hmm. you know, full disclosure, I was I was part of that. But I was able to see firsthand how, as a nonprofit, the Film Society saw the next step of uh, of its of its evolution. As as a first run movie theater that wanted to make sure it had gorgeous screening rooms mm-hmm. that had community initiatives, that's very very important. Uh, cinemas being community centers because those movie theaters in rural areas in the center of the country, there they are your alternative to the Friday night football game for all the kids that don't want to go to the Friday night football game. Right. You have your movie theater, and you know the, the Film Society was able to invest a lot of money and. Uh, really look at a lot of parts of that movie going experience including the the food and beverage service you have here mm-hmm. to make sure the standard is raised and i i always liked coming here as a to the walter reed as a repertory house now i can come here uh on dates uh, with my fiance mm-hmm. without having to tell her hey listen this is tarkovsky and this is what <laughs> you have to be ready for yeah i mean
2: i i i should like to just piggyback on that a little and and mention I was back uh, in my my home turf of southwestern Ohio over the holidays and had occasion to go down to Louisville and visit the uh, new theater, the new screens at the Speed Museum there, uh, which is programmed by uh, Dean Otto, uh, fresh over from uh, the Walker Arts Center in Minneapolis, which is a beautiful, beautiful facility. And I think that this is not entirely anomalous that they have this beautiful facility there. They have the IU Cinematheque programmed by John Vickers in Bloomington, the Wexner Mm -hmm. in Columbus, the good old Cleveland Cinematheque programmed by my pal John Ewing. Uh, Some dear friends of mine have put together a nice micro cinema in, in the city of Cincinnati and slowly, 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 Incrementally, I think, I hope what is happening is you're seeing something that more closely resembles the film cultural landscape of 20, 20, 25 years ago Mm -hmm. than we've seen in some time. You're seeing some semblance of that coming back together where all of a sudden, if you have all these cities that are 90 minutes, two hours apart, that have a space, uh, either a non-profit space... Or a you know, independent micro cinema space or a boutique cinema space, slowly but surely, you're starting to put together a circuit. Mm-hmm. You're starting to put together something that isn't a multiplex, that isn't the, like, air quotes, art house that strictly programs Judy Dench pictures. <laughs> um, right. You're getting a space where something else can happen. Mm-hmm. And I'll go on and add that. Every city of any size has its cinephile community. These people are there. In some cases, they may be great veterans of the campus film culture world. In some cases, they're kids who worked at video stores that went out of business. In Louisville, I was told about the great uh, legacy of Wild and Wooly uh, video run by the uh, bassist of Slint. Um, <laughs> Every city has this. It's all there. It's all waiting to be activated. And, you know, this is not to throw streaming under the bus entirely, but there is something entirely irreplaceable in, you know, having some kind of place to physically be and hang out and communicate and shoot the shit with like minded people. Mm -hmm. And again, I think, I hope. You're starting to see things turn around ever so slightly.
0: Yeah. The thing that I think about a lot and I feel like would contribute to the extinction of the movies, because it's always gonna be the death of cinema, right? We're always told like, oh, this is the year. This is really the year. Suicide Squad and bombed. Invention is- Invention without a future dog. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> For me, that death would be if there is nothing but these very boring. Superhero movies, and especially as a woman, I could not imagine growing up and being anywhere remotely fucking interested in any of this, even if it was Wonder Woman. What is my incentive to be into movies if that's all that there well, Chris is? Evans
2: pretty pretty good looking. Guy. He's hot, but
0: I can look at him for free. <laughs> um, I just follow that ass on Instagram. Um, <laughs> what you're saying is so crucial. Is that you know it's an experience that there are options and it's not just an algorithm. It also just like I feel like the smaller the screen, the less likely I am to be able to pay attention. You know, if it's slow cinema it's really hard if you're, even if you're just at your house watching it on TV, like the likelihood that I'm going to finish that slow cinema, not very likely. But if I'm in the darkened theater with a bunch of strangers, I'm totally
1: transfixed. Oh, it's an ecosystem. And yeah. there there's just, there's no reason why why the entirety of that ecosystem can't can't grow together, mm-hmm. um, and that's what I find so off-putting about some of these sort of quote-unquote disruption conversations. Right, we're not really disrupting the industry; we're promoting a third-party platform mm-hmm. yes. most of the time. Yeah, are we really talking about the death of cinema, or are you hyping up something you're trying to sell? Mm-hmm. And I think not only for the businesses where this can affect their bottom line, but for the consumer, that's something they have to ask themselves. Where do I fit in in this conversation? Where does my engagement with movies and movie culture and the experience of going to the movies fits in with a lot of these things I'm hearing? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, with regards to that idea of
2: what the difference is between a theatrical experience and that home you know home experience and obviously even as somebody who is a more ardent theatrical moviegoer than most Mm -hmm. i spend a lot of time watching things in my house on a laptop on my dope flat screen um
0: (laughs) everyone has a flat screen now. Yeah. Sorry. It's actually not special <laughs> anymore. It's uh,
2: clear as DVD on digital TV screen, actually. <laughs> and I think constantly about a interview given by the filmmaker Jean Stache, uh toward the end of his life as he is recuperating from a fall from a balcony in Greece. And a couple of uh, Cahier critics go to visit him in his flat. And he is a very early adopter of home video technology and they mm-hmm. find him with the blinds drawn just watching tapes over and over again. And he gives this long interview which is in the annex of a uh, Alain Philippon book about Astache where he talks about the difference between the theatrical and the home video experience which I think basically it totally makes sense to me. And I, I excerpted it uh to speak of television and vcr we could say streaming or streaming and vcr or streaming and blu-ray there's one very simple thing that i draw from my experience forced or not one can take a grand pleasure in reviewing films on television and vcr but one has difficulty discovering a film i believe that you can only discover a film at the cinema there isn't a good film that the vcr demolishes though there are none less good that it ameliorates
0: i think that's a perfect place to close
2: So I want to have my cinema. And you started by saying, how do we talk about this without sounding old? I don't. I want to sound fucking ancient. (laughs) You want to sound old? I want everything to go back like it was.
0: (laughs) I think it will. Before we close, as we always do, it would be great if we could each go around and say a film that we saw recently that we liked, new or old, theatrical or streaming. I will go first. I saw this at home. I watched Wojciech Haas' Hourglass Sanatorium, which is just one of the most spectacular Polish films of all time. I have no problem saying that, even though I'm very small familiar with Polish cinema. Um, it's, no, it's just like a very beautiful, surreal. The production design is amazing. The way in which, uh, it, you know, hallucinatory and sort of flows between these different emotional states and memories and real or not real. Yeah, it's great. So please go see it. Martin Scorsese uh, restored it, did a roadshow of it.
1: I I can go ahead. Yeah, I I just saw, and I hope I'm not breaking the embargo on this. But it it played in con. So if I do, I mean, yeah. you know, I'll just say I saw it at con. I didn't. Um, yeah. I saw a good time the the new movie uh, by yeah. the Safdie brothers. Really, really liked it. Um, I was a big fan of their previous film, Heaven Heaven Knows What. I think mm-hmm. is the name. I, I really yeah. really like that film. Uh, it, it's it's. Very much in the same vein. Uh, a great year for Robert Pattinson. Who, who knew? I mean, he started with uh, in the first quarter with um, Lost City of Z that I thought he was quite good, and he's yeah. quite good in this one as well. So he's had a really good year so far.
0: Yeah. Last year was Kristen Stewart's year. This year is his year. He's catching up little yeah.
1: by little. He doesn't have all your uh, science to help him out, though. So, <laughs> yeah.
2: Well, aside from new, which is should be done in the new metal with the umlaut, yeah. new Twin Peaks, duh. which is just, duh, <laughs> Duh. Uh, the best thing that uh, I saw this week was uh, at a weird Wednesday mm. at uh, Brooklyn's Alamo Draft House, hosted by my pal uh, Michael Blandick, Helmer uh, of several fine films, uh, and he presented a pristine 35 millimeter print of the 1990 film Prayer of the Roller Boys, mm. a prophetic dystopian sci-fi film in which the United States has fallen into total rack and ruin. Uh, Harvard university has been moved brick by brick to Japan. <laughs> uh, Amer- hey, remember I'm,
0: when we were afraid of the
2: Japanese, yeah. everybody oh, do remember? I ever. <laughs> um, Americans are streaming over the Rio Grande to, uh, try to, uh, work in immigrant labor, uh, in, in Mexico. Mm. Everything's gone to pot. <laughs> and, uh, there is this trench-coated rollerblading gang called, of white supremacists called the Roller Boys.
0: Well, shit.
2: When is this
1: documentary coming out?
2: <laughs> <laughs> and it, it stars a uh, young and very shimmeringly beautiful Corey Haim um, <laughs> who becomes entangled with this group and has to go undercover... Uh, in order to extract his young, younger brother who's being seduced by their propaganda. What's interesting about it is it's written by a guy called uh, W. Peter Iliff, who is probably best known for writing the screenplay to Point Break, which uh. will come out the following year, and it's practically the same movie. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if ever you needed an object lesson in the fact that directors do actually matter, let it be said that Catherine Bigelow is a better director than Rick King, helmer of *Prayer of the Roller Boys*. But it is also a object lesson in how even the most crap like assembly line, assembly line garbage. And I say all of this having totally enjoyed the movie, but mm-hmm. how even the most, like, disposable crud could just look beautiful at the time. It's shot by Faden Papa Michael Jr., mm-hmm. uh, Alexander Payne's regular cinematographer. And it's really a very, very handsome movie, uh, which has a lot to a lot to tell us today in the era <laughs> of Trump, and it's more relevant now than ever, Prayer of the Roller Boys.
0: All right. Thank you both for coming. This was this illuminating. Was, uh, yeah, thank you. Thank yeah. you for having yeah. me. You've been listening to the Film Comment Podcast, sponsored by Filmstruck. Filmstruck is the streaming service for fans of great cinema and the exclusive streaming home for the Criterion Collection, featuring a bounty of independent and foreign titles, plus original bonus material. And Filmstruck is now available on Roku. Start your free trial today at filmstruck.com. The Film Comment Podcast is produced by Violet Luca and Nicholas Rupold and edited by Michael Odmark. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. Film Comment is a bi-monthly magazine published by the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has featured in-depth reviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream art house and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com/slash/subscribe to purchase a digital or print subscription to the magazine, or check out our app, available on Android and iOS, at filmcommentcom app. Film Comet, at the heart of film culture for over 50 years.